Let's pause for a word of prayer before we encounter this, this word. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for indeed you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. At the heart of our reading today were these clear words, spoken in Hebrew in the imperative in English with an exclamation point. Be strong. Do not fear. According to some, those words, words like them, are spoken 365 times in the Bible. It's as though it's given every day of the year to, to people of faith. Be strong. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Your Lord is coming. You have not been left behind and forgotten. The people of Isaiah's day are hearing an old promise spoken again in their moment. An old word has been made new again. It was given 115 years before at another time of calamity and worry and fear. And the prophet, in a, in a beautiful way, in a way that an old preacher really knows how to do, if he or she is paying attention to the congregation, brings that word forward and presents it to them as a word spoken to them. The, word, the road will be made clear. The desert shall bloom. The crocus will bloom again and again and again. And the glory of God will be seen in nature all around. And there's these beautiful proclamations spoken again. Feeble knees and weak hands made strong. The eyes of the blind opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Waters and streams will flow where sand, burning sand had been before. And a highway in the wilderness will be built. And there will be no danger upon it. It's a beautiful word. A powerful word from their past. Brought back to the future as it were to speak again to their day, to their life, to their struggle. And, and really, isn't that what we do on a Sunday morning? We, we hear these ancient words from 2,000 years before, sometimes as old as 3,000. Sometimes if we read from the book of Job, it's a story that some scholars think may be 5,000 years old. Those ancient texts are brought and given to us in this moment for our day. Now, now some think that this is a, a quaint and and pleasant thing to do. It's nice that you Christians and Jews and folks like you do this sort of thing, but really it doesn't connect to reality. It's just a, it's just a nice little thing to do. Research, though, would say they're wrong. I found some last week that was fascinating. It said that, that words, the words we use matter. It seems obvious, but the researcher goes on to point out that when a, when a couple stands on the chapel of our, of our sanctuary as a couple did yesterday over in the chapel, and they say to each other those simple words, I do, a new reality has been proclaimed. A new way of being for them has been spoken. The words speak into reality. A new day for them as a married couple. The, the, the researcher says that such words are called, quote, performative utterances. Performative utterances. When you say it, you're doing it. We saw this happen recently with our, our congregational board and the visioning work that they undertook uh, well over a year ago, about a year and a half ago, as, as a matter of fact, under an, the, the amazing guidance initially of Phil Love, who has been a tremendous gift to the leadership of this congregation and is now being steered by Leanne Blundell. These church leaders and our board members went through a nearly year-long process to, to ask themselves and to ask many of you, who are we now? Where is God calling us to next? 
These open questions were sometimes tedious to wrestle around and discuss. Sometimes the work was kind of boring and dull, not real exciting. But we finally got to the place where the Spirit opened our hearts and minds and we said we want to engage a changing culture with revitalized worship and, and renewed strength in our small group ministry, create new small groups and, and strengthen the ones that we already have. And we said it and now we're seeing it. I mean, you experienced it just a few moments ago. I wish, I wish you had my seat here on the, on the chancel where Carl and I get to sit, where the other worship leaders get to be every Sunday. I wish you could see Dr. Paul Tucker and, uh, uh, as he conducts the choir and the way he just, I almost believe I could sing if I was sitting up there. And Dina is so cool on the organ, the way she plays and the way she just throws her whole self into the, into the music of the day. Our worship is being revitalized right before your very eyes. The Spirit is at work connecting, connecting lives in ways, frankly, I've not seen in many years. We invited the Spirit of God to help us, and the Spirit of God is truly at work. I mentioned Leanne Blundell a few moments ago. Leanne, Leanne, by training and by profession, is a planner and a systems designer. She's created a map that is three years long that maps out over the next three years all of the things that the Congregational Board is going to be doing, the, the questions they're going to ask, the visions they're going to be asked to, to dream about. It's amazing to watch her. And here's what's even more amazing to me. I think it was about three years ago that the nominating committee met, as they always do, they just met last week, and Leanne's name surfaced as a potential leader of the board. That was three years ago. And then after she was called and accepted that position, voted in by you all, we began this work that we didn't know then we were going to be doing. And all of a sudden, we've got the perfect leadership lined up for us. Scott Glasroot, who's the, who's the, the chair-elect coming in next, thinks very much like Leanne, uh, operates very much like she does. Do you see what's happening? We named it. We said it. And now we're seeing it. On the staff, we call this a God thing. I don't know how to explain that. I, I don't. But we are seeing it because we said it. A clear vision has given us tremendous hope, not only for today, but for the future, too. The ancient, promise, the ancient prophet Isaiah made a similar prophecy, prophet, promise. We may say in our culture, seeing is believing. But in Isaiah's day, and in Jesus' day, too, the deeper reality was to say believing is seeing. You'll see it when you finally believe it. And so we bring those old words from Isaiah's day. We speak them out loud in our sanctuary. The deserts will bloom. The people's joy will be everlasting. We believe it, and we can see it. And so in a couple of weeks, we will sing joy to the world in full voice in a strong congregation, hoping against hope that maybe, that maybe, just maybe, the promise of the third verse will finally be made real. Do you remember how it goes? He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and, how's it go? Wonders of his love. We'll sing it. We'll believe it, and I know we'll see it. I know, though, that there's plenty to be worried about in our world, many reasons to be overwhelmed by, by fear, but our scripture and our songs tell us to be ready, to be prepared for anything, even the presence of God to come among us in strange and new and exciting and, and wonderful ways. God is coming to our world and will not lead us, leave us alone.
In fact, even in the middle of the reading that Carla gave uh, a few moments ago, there's some humor inserted there. It was in verse 8, I think it was. It said, no traveler, not even fools, will get lost. Here's what that means in sort of real time for, for us. Do you have a crazy Uncle Bob? A lot of people have a crazy Uncle Bob. Do you know what I'm talking about? Your crazy Uncle Bob who shows up every year for Thanksgiving or Christmas, whether you invite them or not, you know, and they're just kind of crazy and they say wacky things and they, you just never know exactly what they're going to do. In fact, I asked at the 10 o'clock service, does anyone have a crazy Uncle Bob? And this one 10-year-old girl raised her hand and said, yeah, we do. I mean, yeah, everyone's got one. Maybe, maybe it's your wacky Aunt Carlita or your mean Grandma Gerda or whoever it is, but everybody's got somebody like that. We had an Uncle Bob when I was a kid growing up. He wasn't even a real uncle. He wasn't anyone related to any of us. He just started showing up at Thanksgiving and Christmas and went to football games and baseball games with us. What the Bible promises is that even crazy Uncle Bob will not be forgotten, ever get lost, or be left behind. It's a beautiful promise given to the world, given to all of us. Well, all this sounds wonderful. It makes for a pleasant sermon in, in December as we get ready for Christmas Eve. But the reality of Isaiah's day was pretty harsh. The people are in exile. Their homeland's been destroyed. They may hear the prophet preach and and wonder, well, that's nice, but what's home? Where will we go? What will happen when we get there? The, The old question, it's been around since the beginning of time, can you ever really go home again, will surface for them and maybe... Maybe it surfaces for us, too. Their lives have been torn apart, broken. They've literally sometimes been ripped from their houses. Maybe we've not been ripped from our homes, but we we understand. I read someone last week who said that, that we preachers are preaching to fragmented people in a fragmented world. We're virtually sometimes literally being pulled apart and away from each other. For, for example, I'm not sure I really understand exactly how this works, but I read last week about Facebook. If you're on Facebook and you happen to like certain things and you happen to read certain political sites or certain news sites or certain opinionated pages, well, Facebook starts to pay attention to, the, to what you're, you're paying attention to, and it steers your Facebook page, your, your, your news page, to feed you the similar, same similar kinds of things. At first, that might be comforting. At first, that might make you feel like, oh, this is good. I can go on Facebook and, and, and look at things and just feel like everyone in the world thinks like, me, thinks like me. But here's the problem. When you encounter something, someone in the real world who you like but thinks radically different from you, it can be jarring. It can feel fragmenting, like you're being pulled apart, separated, pushed away. And so we, we wonder. We, we wonder about our world. We wonder if all of this division is a symptom maybe of our longing for something we can't even name. We know we want something better, but we're not even sure what we can call it. I I think that we're looking for a place we can call home, a place where we'll be welcomed and loved and worry can be left at the door. Look at the cover of your bulletin. The meditation for the week is a quote from Maya Angelou. The the ache for home lives in all of us. The safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. Yes. Yes. That's it, isn't it? That's the ache. Pat Conroy called it a, a pearly ache. 
a desire to be loved, to be welcomed, to, to be fully included. It's hard to find, though. It's not easy to, to experience. When I was nine years old, back in 1967, we had what was for our family a really tough Christmas. It was hard. I was becoming more and more aware of the world around me. I was noticing the reports from Vietnam of the war that was going on there, of the turmoil that was happening in the, in the United States in those days. But, but more than that, I was aware that our, our family was in some upheaval. I, I couldn't have told you back then exactly what it was. I know now more so. I've learned some of the stories. But I recall crying myself to sleep at night. My bedroom was right above my parents' bedroom. I was up on the second floor. They were down on the main floor. And in that month, they fought almost every night. I didn't understand. I didn't know, except that I was afraid. The earliest seeds of their divorce and their marriage falling apart were being sown. I, I, like I said, I did not know then what I, what I know now, but I just remember being worried that mom and dad didn't like each other, and that something was going to happen to our family. Christmas Day came, and it was a hard one. There wasn't a whole lot of joy. But then two days later, my grandparents, Robert and Violet Small, made the long drive up that road through the middle of of California all the way to our house. They they pulled into the driveway, and all four of us kids, there was my brother and my little brother who was two, my sister Jerry, my sister Carolyn. I was the oldest of the four. We all ran out there and greeted Grandpa and Grandma, and, and Grandpa gave me the honor. He said, Glenn, come here. I noticed their suitcases were in the back seat. He went around the back to his shiny, brand-new 1967 Pontiac, and he opened the trunk, and it, the lid popped open, and that entire trunk was just packed full of presents with Glenn and Jerry and Carolyn and David's names on them. Oh, my goodness, the excitement we felt. We carried them into the house. We put them back under the tree. It was, a, it was a whole other Christmas. And as great as that was, I got to tell you, the next day was even better. I woke up to the smell of bacon cooking in the kitchen. I, I, I've done some research on this, by the way. That's how heaven is going to smell. My grandmother had gotten up early. She was making bacon and eggs. We had this amazing, sumptuous breakfast. And then she fixed these wonderful sandwiches for lunch. And for dinner, she, she served along with something else. I don't remember, but she served her famous broccoli cheese casserole. My grandmother was born and raised not too far from Wichita, out on the, on the plains of eastern Kansas. That, that recipe was given to her by her mother, handed down over generation over generation, guaranteed to give you a heart attack by the time you're 25. It's one of the best things you'll ever have. It's so good. And I just remember feeling, I just remember being so happy and seeing my mom smile. She hadn't smiled in months. Her parents, my grandparents, they were there. I didn't know what to call it, but I know now. That was home. That was home. Isaiah's ancient promise names the same kind of feelings. It it closes proclaiming, The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and, and hear this, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Sorrow and sighing. That that last phrase is fascinating. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Not just sorrow, but sighing. Sighing, too, will be gone. 
When I was nine, I did not know how to name it, but then I was sighing for home, for that place to be safe and welcomed and, and loved. Our sighs often say more about who we are and what we're going through than any words we could ever, ever, ever express. The other day, I was, I was uh, on the plaza. I had a lunch appointment with somebody here about some church business, and we met at Brio, you know where Brio is in the plaza. I had a nice lunch. I was walking across the street over to my car parked up on the second floor of the parking garage when I saw another member of the church. I said, hey, how you doing? Nice to see you. How are you feeling? I won't tell you if it's a man or woman. I won't tell you their name. But they just looked at me and they said, oh, you ever said that before? Yeah. There's a lot in there, isn't there? That's what I said to the person. I said, boy, there's a story there. And they kind of nodded their head and they said, but I don't even know what the story is. I just know that's what I'm feeling. You know what I mean? I said, yeah, I know what you mean. In the book of Romans, Paul writes to the ancient church, the spirit of God helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very spirit intercedes with sighs. Too deep for words. That sigh that comes from your soul, from your heart, from your body, from your lungs, is the spirit of God interceding within you to express a prayer you don't even know. You don't even understand. Isaiah came and preached to these sighs. We rediscovered it in the teaching of Jesus, who also came and preached to our sighs, to our, our longings, our deepest longings. Somehow Jesus, through the authority of his own life, knew who he was preaching to, understood their sighs, understood their fears and their worries, was able to speak to them in a way they'd never experienced before. This, this one was able to, this one we named Jesus, was able to reach outside of the margins of respectable society and bring anyone and everyone in. You heard it in the text this morning, the lame, the blind, the deaf. In other places, Isaiah includes the refugee, the foreigner, the stranger, that person you'd rather not ever see again, even the little children who in antiquity were not considered full humans are brought to the center in fact, there's an amazing story in Matthew chapter 18 where some parents are so enamored by Jesus, so filled with joy about being in his life, they bring their children to him for a blessing. But the disciples, who are the officers of the church, they stand in front and say, no, uh, keep the children away, please. Jesus is very busy. And Jesus says, get out of the way and let the children come. He brought them from the edge to the center. I'm pretty confident in this church that we get that. Did you watch as the offering was being collected earlier today? Did you see the chair of our elders and Vivian? Where was Vivian? Vivian's sitting right over there. As Vivian came down with Steve and they stood here and Steve kind of guided her around a little bit, that's exactly what Jesus was talking about. It's not about the person in the pulpit. It's not about who's in charge of the board or the elders or anything else. It's whether or not we know how to welcome the small and the little, the outsider and bring them in. When Jesus did that, he was giving his disciples, he was giving his audience, he was giving the church a visual of what it means for the Spirit of God to be at work in our midst. Let the little children come, he said, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. They are already, as Isaiah said, God's people. This is why we love Christmas Eve, I, I think. I think this is why we love it so much. The children, the joy, the experience, the inclusiveness of, of welcoming anyone and everyone on, on that Christmas Eve service when we jammed this place three times in the evening. You know, on, on Christmas Eve, 
we'll sing Silent Night. There'll be almost a thousand of us. If we put up enough extra chairs, we might have a thousand folks in this sanctuary all singing that old carol, Silent Night, Holy Night. And then there'll be a moment towards the end when when 1,000 of us will raise a candle against the darkness, proclaiming by our action that we believe, we believe that the Spirit of God came to the world in the form of a baby, the form of a child. That candle, that light, will proclaim all by itself. The light of God has come into the world, but the darkness the darkness shall not overcome. And then maybe we'll finally see it because we believe it. Amen.